welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. You think you need a lawyer? You probably do. Hey, Cops and Riders. Thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Riders podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I will be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Fran Cross, Gary Edgington, J.K. Doan, and Kathleen Kovacic. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers, all one word. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. My guest on today's show is George Kramer, who began his 40-year investigative career in law enforcement and then moved into private and corporate investigations. He attended the Institute of American Indian Arts, earning his MFA in creative writing at age 68. As corporate and private investigator, Mr. Kramer conducted thousands of investigations throughout the Americas and Asia. He kept his investigative skills honed by volunteering as a missing persons investigator at a California police department. In today's episode, we discuss how George got interested in law enforcement, what it was like to be a police officer in 1968, training and equipment for a street cop back in the late 1960s, doing undercover drug buys with members of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, becoming a private investigator, and beginning his writing career and his MFA at age 68. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. George Kramer, welcome to the show. Well, it's good to be here. I've uh, been looking forward to meeting you. I've been following your blog, and now I'm going to learn a little bit about your podcast. Outstanding. I see there's a lot of pictures of you on a motorcycle. Do you still ride? I did until June. Okay. Okay. I see it was an ultra. It looked like an ultra, Harley Davidson Ultra. Ultra classic, yes. Yeah. How long did you ride for? I've ridden off and on for since I was uh, 18, so about 60 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a long time. That's a yeah. long time. Do you still have the bike? No, in June. Okay. I uh, gave it up. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I've been riding since I was 16. And I had all different kinds of just beater bikes. Yeah, I I couldn't afford a decent one. You know, I was a cop, you know, kids in private school, et cetera, et cetera. Then uh, I did buy a a Yamaha Roadstar uh, 2020. I rode that for almost 20 years. And yeah, I took it out to Sturgis. I did all kinds of riding with that. And the Harley bug bit me. Yeah, just <laughs> I went to the Harley dealership just on a whim. And I just retired from uh, being a cop. And I went with a buddy. And it's like, ah, we'll just go in and look. And I was like, okay, fatal mistake. Yeah. You know, I was used to this big um, Roadstar. That was 900 pounds dry. And 
I sat on a street bob. It was a 2017 street bob, and I'm like, holy cow! Then this is fuel injected. I never had a motorcycle that was fuel injected before, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, man, this is modern. <laughs> I love this. So yeah, I haven't looked back. It's lighter, faster. You know, I'm just like, I'll ride that for a while and see what happens. Yeah. All right. So police work. When did that start for you? What was your first job in police work? Uh, my first, uh, I started out when I, I was still in the Navy. Uh, I was taking classes at a local community college, and I met some San Leandro cops, and they talked me into joining the department as a reserve. Oh, okay. And, and I, I was hooked from uh, day one, and this was right during the height of Vietnam. And uh, if you went to a police department, you could get a 90-day early out early out and i'll tell you what what even if i hadn't been wanting to be a cop a 90 day early out was sign me up and i'm gone so and, 90 days early out of the navy yeah obviously okay oh i'm mm-hmm. sorry no no that's okay so where were you stationed i joined the navy to see the world i was born and raised here 40 miles away i went to boot camp in san diego and i was stationed at nas alameda <laughs> which is on the Oakland, San Francisco Bay. <laughs> you didn't go very far. <laughs> no, I didn't go very far. Uh, so May of 68, I was released. And the next day I was a San Leandro police officer. Wow. So you, your first job or your first contact was with other San Leandro police officers. They convinced you to be a reserve officer. Uh, how how much training was entailed in that back then to be a reserve officer? Oh, it was extensive. Uh, I put on the uniform and got in a car and rode <laughs> next to a guy. And that was it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> here's your gun. Here's your badge. Have at it. Yeah. Wow. They, did, they didn't even do a background investigation for reserves then. <laughs> Oh my! <laughs> so, what was the transition like from becoming a reserve officer? Because reserve, you don't get paid, right? You're right. volunteering. So, you become a police officer. What kind of training, or what did the transition look like from reserve officer to like paid, you know, full time police officer? Well, for two weeks, I rode beside somebody in the car, <laughs> and then uh, I went to the Oakland Police Academy. Yeah. Academy oh, okay. class number 49 and uh, was three months. We almost got out early because it was uh, during the uh, free speech riots in Berkeley. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it was so, a it was fast transition. Yeah. So you're in the academy, you know, obviously the basics of police work, et cetera, et cetera. You come out and you're going to the... Um, your regular job as a police officer. Do you remember what kind of equipment you like you walked out with? What did that look like back then? Well, I had my uh, six shooter <laughs> and uh, six spare rounds, handcuffs. We didn't have enough radios for the reserves or for the uh, second officer on occasion. So my first experiences were without without a radio. Wow. And uh, 
my second night, we were doing these burglaries, and I was up in a res- resident's house, and I needed to reach somebody, and I couldn't remember the phone number for the police department. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> oh, did you guys have the long batons back then? Oh, yeah. Nice yeah, long batons. Yes. Yeah. A nice piece of oak. Yes. Uh, was that in 68 or what, what year was that? 68, 69. Yeah. What kind I, of cars did you guys have back then? What were your squads? Uh, we had 67, mostly 67 Plymouths. We had okay. a couple of 64 Fords that had no brakes after the first stop. <laughs> you know, you, you're kind of reminding me of Adam 12, because I think they had the Plymouths and the, yeah. uh, that's around the same era then, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. So is the two red lights on top and the um, siren was on top as well? No. One round red light on top oh, and the okay. siren was in the uh, grill. Oh, Okay. Yeah, they they found that with a siren on top like that, cops were having some like serious um, damage to their hearing, you know, because it was like right on top of them and you couldn't hear the radio either. So you had a squad radio. And I imagine if you could have a a handheld radio, you know, there wasn't a microphone. You had to take it off off your belt. There wasn't like a microphone that sneaked up to your like lapel or anything like that. No, you had to take it out and the batteries were terrible. They didn't last long. (laughs) okay so that's your start in police work how long did you work for that department i was there 16 years okay and did you take any promotion exams or what your uh, career look like there i had a good career there Uh, i did some foolish things but uh at the end of three at the end of three years i was uh transferred to the detective bureau which was unheard of in fact created some issues okay. uh, and then i left for nine months and went to the Barry bay area rapid transit district uh my my detective partner uh went over there and uh, talked me into following him okay and it was it was terrible the boredom uh within three months i was made the first detective uh, at Bart, and I have, you know, I probably should feel guilty, but I would report for duty in the morning at nine. I would get on a train and go back out to Hayward and go, go take uh, my college classes. Then okay. I would, <laughs> and I'd come back at three, <laughs> uh, and my they called him advisors. He was uh, their lieutenant. Now my advisor spoke German, so. He would spend the rest of the afternoon helping with me with my German homework. Oh, my. Okay. <laughs> so, so after nine months, I was just bored, ashamed, and everything else. So I called the chief, San Leandro, and I was back in uniform uh, four days later. So back then, you know, you said you after three, you were, three years, you are in the detective bureau. Was that a promotion exam, or is that something they appoint you to, or what did that look like? It was a lateral. It was a lateral. Mm. And so it's a lateral, which means, you know, it's not a promotion. It's not a demotion. It's the same pay, same level, but it's a different job. It's investigations. Right. Right. And uh, I came back and two years later, I uh, made sergeant. 
Okay. Now that department back then, when you made Sergeant, did you have to go back to patrol or did you stay in the detective bureau? <laughs> Neither. Uh, okay. Back then, uh, I think you, some people call them desk sergeants, but we were oh. called station sergeants and we supervised the radio room, the property room. We even got to do all the booking and fingerprinting ourselves oh, as sergeants. Really? Oh. Wow. Oh, yeah. And the worst duty, I couldn't believe I got so mad I was spitting nails. The POA had a coffee machine. My job as the station sergeant was to service it, clean it, <laughs> fill it, run it. <laughs> That's very important stuff there. (laughs) Good thing they're paying you more and you test, you know, you studied hard and promoted and now you're the coffee guy, right? You're Mr. Coffee. Yeah. I was only there about, I don't know, six months before I got to go to patrol. Okay. And I know you will agree that being a patrol sergeant is the finest job in the department. That's why I never wanted to promote after that. I, I hit patrol sergeant and I'm like, then it, you know, after 17 years, I went day shift and I'm a day shift patrol sergeant. I'm like, okay, I'm the king of the world right now. This is really cool. Yeah. 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 And, uh, I mean, I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I go to call, you know, you go to calls you want to, or you don't go. Uh, and, uh, on weekends and it seems like I always had weekends, uh, there was no command staff. Uh, and as a patrol sergeant, with less than a year and as a sergeant, I'm the you know, I'm I'm the chief. I'm everything. Yep. You're the grand poopa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, you know, a lot of people didn't like to work weekends for obvious reasons. Then I had comrades that wanted to work weekends because you know, as they said, there's no white shirts running around. You know, right. that's what you know, lieutenants and captains wore white shirts in anything above that and it's like okay we're not gonna have a whole lot of that and so yeah we, we rule the roost okay. so you become a sergeant you're on patrol did you go back to the detective bureau yeah uh i never it seemed like i wasn't anywhere very long until up <laughs> until then uh i was patrol probably a year and i the chief offered me uh the sergeant's position for vice narcotics intelligence. Mm. And I had, I had done uh, narcotics work and buys when I was in detective. So I jumped at it. Uh, and uh, I had one guy. Uh, and by the time I left, I had uh, myself and three uh, detectives. Okay. Uh, and it was, uh, it was an experience. It oh, I bet. Experience. So what years was this? 76 through, uh, 80, 81. Okay, so 76 through 80, 81, you're looking, what, heroin was still kind of the thing, and then into the 80s, crack cocaine really started jumping up. What was the drug of choice back then? Do you remember, like, what you were going after? Well, Oakland was uh, heroin. Okay. And South San Leandro and South County, we had the Hells Angels, and so meth was, uh, was really oh. pre- prevalent. Okay. So, so you had I, So you had Hell's Angels to deal with. Wow, that was back in Yeah, that's back in the day with the Hell's Angels. And that's extremely dangerous. That was a very dangerous time for cops because, you know, there was no bulletproof vest back then. 
and cops still had fairly primitive training and firearms compared to what some of the bad guys had and our training really you know you would train you know with firearms but it was static like you stand on the line and you shoot twice then you would like stop then you'd shoot twice then you'd stop yeah and you didn't move for like cover or concealment none of these things were taught to street cops and they were getting they were getting killed left and right because of that yes yes yeah, uh, I can't remember when the Newhall thing was where the four CHP officers were killed in a shootout. But when around that time, and that's when we first started here in California, thinking that maybe we aren't doing this right. Mm. I, I don't know if you remember or not, but one of the reasons they got killed is when they would drop the shells out of their uh, revolvers, Yeah, they would drop them in their hands and put them in their pockets. Oh, that's right. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's like, oh, my God, you're and I know in Milwaukee, you know, years ago, their training was all static line. It was all bullseye, you know, training where you're literally standing there in front of a target and you'd shoot twice. Then you would evaluate, you know, what happened. Then you'd pause for like a couple of seconds and you'd shoot some more, you know, twice and you're going back and forth. And like what you said, I remember talking to a copper that was on day shift when I was new on late shift. And he says, yeah, he said, we're trained to put our like casings in our pockets. And see that stirs a memory when you said that, I'm just like, you have no time to worry about any of that. If you're in a firefight, I mean, that's the last thing you should be worried about is policing up your casings. Right. And we're, you know, we're all, we all have a habit, you know, and that's what we do. And when you're, when you're under stress, you always go back to your training, you know, because, you know, you have, that's what you have the most reps with. And if it's good training, they're going to inject stress. They're going to, you know, nothing is like the real thing on the street, but they try as hard as they can to, like I said, inject that stress into you. You know, you're doing jumping jacks or pushups or running up and down the halls just to get your heart rate up. And then it's like, okay, now be accurate with a gun. Yeah, yeah, so we would do stuff like that, or you know, you an instructor would be yelling at you or screaming at you behind you, you're in your ear, and there they'd have recordings of sirens, you know, blaring and you know, music blaring and whatever else. But yes. they found out that the static line training, where again, it, they call it combat training now, where you're moving to cover and concealment, you're you know you're not just shooting twice. They, there was like fatal police officer shootings where a cop gets killed where they would shoot twice and miss or not stop the threat and just pause. And it's like, why are they doing this? And it's like, Oh, that's how they're, that's how we're training them. You know, it's time to you know change some stuff up. So you were in a big transition area era, yes. you know, from the time that you started to the time that you ended, you've seen a lot of changes. Yes, I did. I did. Wow. So you were in vice, you know, when you were doing, dealing with the hell's angels, you were in vice then. Yes. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm always, I'm always fascinated by, you know, outlaw biker gangs, you know, that kind of thing, their culture, you know, it's something that people don't know a lot about. And I think it's fascinating. Yes. Yes. Well, let me step back to, uh, as a patrol officer, yeah. Uh there was one thing that that frightened me and that was Hills Angels. 
I was too dumb not to be frightened of a lot of things, but I was frightened of hell's angels. So my wife would say I'm stubborn and try to overcome. So every time I would see a hell's angel, I would find a reason to stop them. Okay. And if possible, arrest them and talk with them. So uh, I had an, a lot more contacts with the hell's angels than uh, than most. Uh, the only one I ever lost, really lost, was to actually was the Sonny Barger over a parking ticket. <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> now sonny barger he was the president right oh yeah oh, yeah he just passed away here this year anyway he was one badass uh customer but anyway um so when i got into vice uh and uh i want I, I had already been buying dope so i uh started uh trying to buy uh from hell's angels and none of them ever recognized me Okay. Uh, out of uniform and dressing, dressing grubbly. Yeah. And uh, I actually even went to a birthday party with a uh, with a uh, female informant uh, with the Angels, and that was interesting. We had the uh, I developed a number of uh, snitches uh, who were hangers on. Uh, never got a Hell's Angel to roll, but okay. uh, a number of them. And uh, so we did some good search warrants. Uh, and one of the Hells Angels uh, was a roadie and ran the road crew for a very well-known country Western singer that everybody would recognize his name. And they even had their van with all the uh, band equipment at the house when we hit it. And the first thing this guy did was turn a pit bull, uh, not a pit bull, but a... Uh, Doberman Pinsky. Yeah. 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 And the guy beside me shot it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the only time I ever saw a dog shot uh, in all my time. And then the next thing we encountered was a rattlesnake. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the kitchen, on the kitchen table was a pound of meth wrapped in brown paper with a label, uh, a postage label, to a very prominent attorney at the time. (laughs) Okay. Now, for people who don't know, you know, a clubhouse for a motorcycle club slash gang like Hells Angels, you know, in Milwaukee, we have the Outlaws. And their clubhouse was (laughs) literally two blocks from the police station. It was kind of funny, the relationship we had there. Yeah, they got dismantled through Rico. They the feds had a real good Rico case against them. They're still operating, but not the strength that they were, you know, back in like say the nineties, you know, like yeah. mid to late nineties. But anyways, there's cameras everywhere. That thing is fortified. You know, it's a fortress. You know, it's yes. so what are the Hell's Angels? Um, what did that look like? Uh, basically, the same. Their clubhouse in Oakland was basically the same. And uh, actually, anybody who lived near them was happy because there was no crime allowed. <laughs> you know, there's no violence, no nothing. Uh, we did a RICO there. Uh, it was one of the early RICOs. And they brought in a, a pretty sharp attorney from Arizona. We had 19 defendants. And I uh, was driving informants over having them lay on the floor in the back, covered up with a blanket, going into the back of the courthouse. Uh, 
and we lost all 19 cases. You lost them all? <laughs> lost them all. Oh. And uh, amongst the 19 were some hanger-ons who were had been informants, and two of them met untimely deaths within oh three months of the end of the trial. Wow. So, yeah. it, you know, informants, snitches, these are people that they're not Hell's, Ma- Hell's Angel members. You know, they're probably girls that are, like, hanging out you know, you know, more or less dating the guys or whatever the case may be. What's their, what is their, um, why do they do it? Like what like prompts them to help the police? We'll be right back. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a motley collection of strangers come together to sit in judgment for what becomes the longest trial in state history. A man stands accused of murdering his wife by antifreeze poisoning. Along the way, these strangers find more in common than anyone expected, evolving into something beyond a simple jury of peers. One year later, they reunite, only to find that they've been poisoned by what suspiciously looks like antifreeze. Is this revenge for their verdict, or forewarning of something more sinister to come? The clock is ticking, and as time winds down, vengeance turns wickedly ironic. Inspired by the real-life jury experience of author Ken Humphrey, The Breakfast Jury is a fast-paced summer novel guaranteed to leave readers guessing until the last page. Pick up this murder mystery now at KenHumphrey.com. Peek behind the curtain of a sordid murder that will make you wonder, did that really happen? Again, that's KenHumphrey.com. We get good cases on them. Uh, when uh, When they're not yet full members and they're hanging around trying to become members, they have to do a lot of the shit work. Right. Uh, and l- transporting and selling and stuff. I, I was, a, I was really about, I, I was a biker. In fact, at times I always thought that if I hadn't been a cop, I'd have been a, a real <laughs> biker. Uh, so I was able to buy. Uh, in fact, I, uh, got informants into, uh, some fairly decent levels, but as far as the snitches go, do those girlfriends and then like guys who, because there's no female Hells Angels. No, you know, it's all males and very few few female informants in the angels. Okay. Now, as far as, you know, in Milwaukee and some other places, they call them prospects. Is that what they called them back then? Yes. Prospects. Yeah. You don't have a full rocker on your like vest or cut or whatever you want to call it. You're prospecting. Like you said, you, you do all the bitch work more or less, you know, you take more. Once they went from a hanger on, or that's no patches, no rocker, and okay. became prospects. Uh, the prospects were very loyal. There, very, very few uh, prospects uh, became informants, and I only know of one or two uh, full patch Hell's Angels that rolled over, and they did, and that was for the feds. Right. It, that's got to be a big case if yeah. you know, you're going to get somebody like that. So more or less, these people that are helping you out are more or less trying to save their own bots. Yeah, you yeah. arrest them for whatever. And then the D.A. is going to say, hey, you know what? You play ball. You know, maybe I'll lessen the sentence or I'll defer it. But you have to work for us now. Yes. OK, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, I, the, we, we call that working off the beef. OK. Working off the beef. Very cool. So you're um, doing all that fun stuff. <laughs> when did you retire from police work? Well, 
you mentioned earlier before we went live that uh, you like to kick indoors. I had a nickname <laughs> one kick, one kick Kramer, and um, that's impressive because they usually don't go with one kick. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started as when I was a detective. Uh, I just had a knack for it, and uh, we were serving a warrant uh, in another jurisdiction, and they had this door. Nobody could see it and move it, so. I said, well, I'll give it a try. And uh, I uh, messed up my knee and messed up Ooh. my back. Ah. Uh, you know, And so that was uh, the end of my kicking. Oh, dang. <laughs> so you medically retired then? Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. So that's after how many years on the 16. department? 16. Okay. That's a long time, but, you know, people do go longer. So you got a medical retirement off of that. And, oh, I got to ask you, donkey kick or front kick? Front kick. Okay. Donkey kick works better, man. Fly in front. <laughs> Leave the ground about one inch above the uh, doorknob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that an old timer at the academy that taught us, you know, he's, He'd been around forever. He's like, yeah, you guys are doing it wrong. He said, donkey kicks where you face away from the door. Obviously not tactically sound, but you know, you got to have a partner that's covering you. But he says, yeah, donkey kick that thing. You have a lot more force. And I'm like, so done it both ways. It's it's not pretty. Now they have battering rams. They do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I went to my captain a couple of times. I'm like, you know, it'd be nice to have some breaching tools. You know, not that every squad has to have one but at least a sergeant's car because they have to call us anyways when they're um breaching a door and it's he said no 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 and i'm it costs too much i said i'll buy it i'll buy my own he says well then you gotta train up on it and i'm like how much training do we need to break down a door these guys are doing it yeah (laughs) and then he says well you need eye protection i said i'll go to home depot right now and buy a bunch (laughs) of like goggles or safety glasses you know certain people in the department wanted to keep their jobs and there were the higher up you went on the food chain, the, the more they got out of touch with what actually happened on the street. Yes. And you know, it's like, even though my captain would have to approve all these, we call them force entry reports where he kicked down a door. And when I was a, a sergeant on late shift, it was at least two or three times a week that I was kicking somebody's door down or one of my cops was kicking down a door. And I was like, it sure would be nice to have some tools here that would actually do this, but okay, well, whatever. Oh, yeah. so when you were a police officer and a detective and a sergeant, what was your favorite part? Well, I loved working, working dope. Okay. But, but the finest feeling really was a uh, swing shift patrol sergeant. Well, you swing know? shift. Oh, uh, four to midnight with okay. a good with a good crew that you could count on. Uh, and uh, my last tour as a swing shift patrol sergeant, I had uh, some, you know, young, smart, eager beavers. Mm-hmm. And I had I had some old timers who weren't just old timers. They were old timers who were mentors. Sure. Uh, and so the crew ran really well. If I had a problem with uh, a uh, uh, an officer not you know not responding in the proper way, uh, 
I'd have one chat with him and the word would get around. And I believe, I have no evidence (laughs) that on occasion, one or two of the old time mentors would have a private session with that officer. You know, that's what's missing in law enforcement today, because talking to my friends that are still cops, you know, it's the average time that like a night shift person has sometimes it's like, you know, three, four years. And if you have five years on, you're a salty old vet. Yeah. And that's not cool, man. You know, you, you got a bunch of people with not a lot of street experience running around at night and they're being put in some really precarious positions and situations. And like you said, that informal mentoring is huge, you know, just, you know, and it's not bullying. It's not, no, it's just, their own way, you know, there is formal and there's informal leaders in a police department. You know, obviously the formal leader would be the chief, you know, and then it filters down. And I love being a sergeant because I had one foot on the street with the guys, you know, quote unquote. And then my other foot was talking to the lieutenant and the captain, explaining things. And I was the buffer between the two. And it's like, okay, you know, it's like, okay, the captain's got, you know, this hair up his ass about something, or she isn't very happy about this or whatever. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'll take that under advisement and I'll, I'll, I'll pass it along. Now it's the watered down version, you know, depending on what it is, you know, it's like the cops that are on the street, they deal with so much BS on the street. You know, I tried to shield them as much as possible from the BS that happened internally i couldn't do all of it obviously but i i did my best and i guess my next question to you would be what was your least um the least favorable part about being a cop when you were a cop when well i never liked dead bodies but that's one thing yeah they my are least, yeah. <laughs> my, my my least uh I'm going to share a terrible, terrible experience. Okay. That that should have cost me my stripes. Um, I'd only been a, I was a sergeant for 10 years. I'd only been a sergeant for about four years. And I had this crew and my best friend, my absolute best friend was on that crew. And he had been dating this woman. And one night I get, a, we didn't have phones. I get a call, a radio call to call the station. I call the station. And uh, she is really upset. Uh, and he had been threatening her, doing some bad shit. Yeah. So, so I drove over to her house, which was not in our city. Okay. And sat down and talked with her for about an hour, leaving my town and my city uncovered. And then I went back and I counseled my buddy. Yeah. And of course, uh, assholes always tell you it'll never happen again, sir, Sergeant. Oh, yeah. A week later, I wake up in the morning and my wife tells me, you know, the phone was going off all night last night. And I had this terrible premonition. And I I called the station and he had gone over and, uh, raped her, sodomized her, put a gun in her mouth. Oh my God. And they, she had called, she was calling me, which I'm glad she didn't get me. 
but she went to the station and made a report. Well, I called the station and, and I think I just said the guy's name and uh, the desk sergeant said, yeah. So I went to his house and my captain was there talking to him. And this guy is denying all this shit. Yeah. And uh, so I convinced him that he had a choice. He could resign right then and there, give me his badge and gun, and we might be able to protect him and not put him in prison. So he said, okay. I gave him my, uh, I had a motorcycle that he really liked. So I loaned him my motorcycle. He wanted a two-week ride. He come back and he rescinded and said, I'm not retiring and none of it happened. Oh, my God. Um, and we went to, we went to, I had to testify in civil service hearings and uh, in the rape trial. Yeah. He was convicted. Good. And I never, uh, that was the worst experience I ever had. Yeah. That, that's a tough situation because like you said, it's your friend, but you're also his boss. And those two things can be real precarious because I've had to deal with that myself throughout my career as a cop. And I had, you know, bosses that were my friends. And then later on the tables turned and all of a sudden I'm a boss and I've got coppers that are my friends and you still have to do what's right. Yeah. That takes a lot of wind out of your sails, but you got to do the right thing. At the end of the day, you have to do the right thing. If this guy is raping women, he belongs behind bars or worse in my book. There's, there's no gray area there whatsoever, you know, but yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Yep. Being the boss is sometimes it's lonely at the top, isn't it? It is. It really so, is. So you get the medical retirement. And what did you do after that? Well, I called a friend of mine at a uh, credit card company about five minutes after I got notified that they decided to retire me. Okay. And he hired me and I started three weeks later as a credit card fraud investigator uh and then i went from that into uh to a bank and then i went to work for a uh, international firm as a an investigator is that in and, banks as well no outside of banks a retail commercial uh the banks were fun they were really good but you know you 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 save a million dollars, they've lost a hundred. You know, <laughs> so I went to work for an international commercial firm, and they told me that I'd be investigating fraud and crimes against the company, and occasionally an internal affair. Well, it turned out that uh, all I they had me doing was uh, investigating regional managers so that they could fire them and hire new people for less money. Oh. Uh, so after uh, six months, I called my boss and said, hey, uh, this is not what you hired me for. Right. I, I want to leave. I'll, I'm going to give you a six weeks notice. And he said, oh, that's great. Appreciate it. 20 minutes later, the manager of the store where my office was came in and said, I've been notified you've been fired. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to walk you out. Dang. Okay. <laughs> So I made a phone call to a buddy who had a fledgling fledgling PI business and went to work with him. Okay. Uh, And we did, uh, I did the insurance fraud and uh, 
internal investigations and stuff like that. And he did the uh, protection stuff with the shotgun and stuff. Now, as far as like insurance fraud, like what kind of cases would you have? Typically, uh, one of the, I'll, I'll share one with you, another bad cop that should have gone to jail. Yeah. There was a, a, a group of uh, criminals who had a collection of jewelry. Mm-hmm. And they would loan it to you, say, "Hey, George, you want to you want to make a big insurance claim? Yeah, all right, we'll rent you this uh, collection of jewelry, and you oh. go over here and you get an appraisal, and then you claim you get robbed or stuff." Oh, okay. And so I saw the same jewelry over and over again. <laughs> In okay. this one case, uh, there was this woman, and she was married to a. To a police officer, and she said that she had been robbed at gunpoint uh, at a mall parking lot. And why did you have this, you know, eighteen thousand dollars worth of jewelry in your purse? Well, I was going to have it appraised, and I got there, and they were closed, and I just happened to get robbed. Okay, <laughs> they took my purse and everything in it. Well, when I interviewed her, I asked to see her driver's license. And it was the one that had been issued like three years before. Yeah, they didn't take everything. And stuff like that. So then I did some financial checking, and uh, her husband had bought a brand new boat that cost (laughs) almost exactly what the insurance paid off. Oh, God. And he was a local policeman, and I I went to the police station because he wouldn't let me come to his house or anything else. Yeah. And I went to the police station, and he says, I'm not going to talk to you. And so I had a chat with their internal affairs and they said, well, we can't do anything about something that happened outside. Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah. But we did get her prosecuted. Good. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah. That, so, you know, that's one aspect of being a private investigator. What you said, your partner did shotgun like protection. What, what does that mean? Well, he had some unsavory clients. I think their technical term is they were bookies. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, sometimes they had to move large amounts of cash, and he helped them. He would ride along with them. <laughs> also, uh, we had uh, he had clients that were like uh, jewelry stores who were going to move uh, large amounts of stuff, sure. and they didn't want to use armored cars because they were too obvious. Things like that. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> Understood. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about PIs? You know, man, there's how many stories and books and movies and TV shows, you know, about PIs. I always think of a Rockford, you know, that's how old I am. It's like uh, he made living on a trailer, you know, look cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, the misconceptions are, and I can't speak for all states, but um, in California, private investigators and retired cops can carry a concealed weapon only if they also have a security license and do specific qualifications. Right. Uh, and I had a concealed permit from the department, but in uh, like 30 years in private and corporate investigations, I carried a gun one time and that was moving uh, a quarter of a million dollars. You know, oh yeah, I think I'd want to be armed for that. Yeah, yeah. 
But well, uh, so we don't, we're most for the most part, very, very few private investigators are armed. Very, okay. very few private investigators in, in investigate murders. We I, I did work on a couple of them as a private investigator, uh, but the police had done excellent work. And, you know, we couldn't come up with any anything new or different uh, yeah. just to satisfy the family. Sure. Um, we, uh, you know, how many different jobs are there for cops? Well, there's 10 times that many jobs for private investigators. Okay. You know, I knew a couple guys that all they did was try to recover uh, stolen children. And mm. that's, you know, one... The husband or the wife takes the kids and skedaddles. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, very rarely the, the private investigators work kidnappings. Uh, we do it uh, in my business. I did a lot of uh, placing undercover people into different businesses. Hmm. Uh, you come to me and say, hey, listen, I've got this uh, international company, but my only problem is in xyz city where we're having problems yeah uh so i i i interview them and the people in fact in the case i'm thinking of it was the union that came and said you guys have got to do something about the drug problem we have people going out of there uh disabled because of the drugs that are passing so it was that was a midnight shift so I uh, hired a uh, reserve deputy yeah, because she was sworn, and she went to work as uh, a worker in this factory. And the night manager, his father had been with the company for 30 years, and this young man had been there five years, and they wanted to bring him in. And I don't know why, but I said, no, you don't tell him. Well, why? Because he'll treat her differently than all the rest of the employees. Sure. Her second night on the job, he calls her in and he says, on this shift, if you want to buy any drugs, you come to me, no <laughs> one else. Okay. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, my uh, brother was a PI for years and he did a ton of surveillance for workman's comp fraud investigation insurance companies. It's like, okay, you're out of, you work in, you know, factory making widgets, you know, whatever. And you say you hurt your back at work and the doctor has a five pound restriction. You know, you can only lift up to five pounds. You know, he'd be in his van filming them, chopping wood, putting their boats in the water, doing all kinds of crazy oh, stuff. Yeah. So oh, that yeah. was a big chunk of what his job was. Yeah. As uh, years went by, we developed that more and more because, you know, it was basically a cash cow because you're, you know, your investigator is out there. Anywhere from eight to twenty-four hours. Yep. In fact, I had one investigator start on foot in San Francisco, and wind up uh, in in a van in Fort Collins, Colorado, over a three. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you go where it goes. Right. Uh, you know. That's funny. So yeah. you know, I was looking at your bio, and it said that you worked uh, investigations, you know, here in America and in Asia. Could you? What did that look like? Where where were you? Uh, China and Korea. Um, Korea was 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 uh, easier. It's against the law to be a private investigator in Korea. 
Okay. I may have changed by now, but it was against the law. So uh, the company that sent me, I was listed as an auditor. And I hired a, a retired major from uh, the Korean police who spoke fluent English. And mm. he was... An, and he said, I'm not a private investigator, George, but I have some ideas. <laughs> I'm, I'm your security protection. Okay. And uh, working with him, uh, we dug deep into what was going on there. And uh, was that like a bank fraud thing or? No, no, it was contract fraud. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm the guy that, hey, that signs the contracts for, let's say, uh, your janitors. Okay. And, uh, you give me a thousand dollars a month and you get this fifty thousand dollar a month contract. Oh, okay. 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 You know, gifts like that. And mm. uh they're over there. <laughs> they have uh karaoke. Oh yeah. Uh but I mean karaoke, fun karaoke, uh with lots of girls to help you sing. Oh, okay. And uh they would entertain our employees and, you know, be a million, whatever it is they have. But it turned out that they were spending 20 grand a night entertaining, uh, you know, managers and stuff. And oh. we had one uh, who was getting uh, married. Uh, so he got married over in Hong Kong because it's bigger over there. Yeah. And you give gifts in little red envelopes for wedding presents. Well, these People were flying over from Korea with really thick red envelopes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. So I see that you had uh, some uh, interview and interrogation. Um, you're considered an expert in that field. What are some like best practices for uh, interviewing and interrogating people that you think? I think one of the best practices is to not raise your voice. Sure. To talk like you and I are uh, casually, and but never stop. Never allow the person to say, uh, you know, there's nothing else I can tell you. Well, tell me more. Um, and it's, it's really different in the corporate world. Mm. The interviewing and, and I, I, I say I've never interrogated anyone. Okay, sure. People. Sure, sure. But let's say uh, you're taking some of our products, say uh, uh, laptops out the back door, and uh, we develop some information that is probably you. And uh, as the investigations manager, I decide, well, we're going to interview this person. Mm -hmm. And of course, you gather everything you can about them. You, you take them by surprise, which you can do, and you set them down and you explain to them, listen, I'm not a police officer. You do not have to talk to me at all. But I understand your manager has asked you to come in. Yes. Well, you're free to leave at any time. But once you get that all down, they're not going to leave because they know if they leave, they're going to get fired. Yeah, true. You know, uh, and you chat with them and you... You know, it's hard to say it in a few words. Uh, my longest interview was, I think, five hours. Uh, and finally, the guy was 
you know, I guess I'm going to have to give in because you're not going to quit, Mr. Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> Five hours. Yeah, that that's a bet. That's a bet. <laughs> Dang. So you volunteer or I don't or you have volunteered helping with missing person cases. Yes. Is that, is that with your local PD? Where I retired from. Where you reti- okay. What does that look like? Do you still do it or? No. Um, I quit just about the time uh, COVID started and I was okay. really getting, spending more and more time uh, with my writing and it was interfering with it. Gotcha. But uh, it's a, when I was a, when I, back when I was a young policeman, you take a missing persons report, you file it. And that was really in nine times out of 10, that was the end of it. Right. Uh, nowadays, uh, because everybody's afraid of their own shadow, <laughs> uh, uh, the first 24 hours, uh, the street officers bust their ass trying to find the person and get mm-hmm. leads and stuff. At the end of the 24 hours, the reports are filed. And they go to the detective bureaus mm. uh, and everyone in they're all different. Some of them are fantastic. Uh, and San Leandro's is not fantastic. Uh, they don't have a dedicated uh, investigator for missing persons. Okay. Hell, they don't have dedicated investigators. There are less detectives in San Leandro now than when I went in there in 1971. Wow. Yeah. Like all these, like all the departments and probably like yours. Yeah, the the, you know, the person power, the manpower sure. levels are, are really down, and they can't fill the positions. But they've never filled this position. Mm. Uh, so the proper the uh, sergeant try in charge of crimes against persons, he gets the reports and he shuffles them out, and he shuffles them out to, to different investigators. Yeah, and they might even go to a property detective who makes a couple of calls or reads it and files it. And that's the end of it. Wow. Uh, you know, and that sounds terrible, but that's a fact of life. Yeah. Yeah. So are... uh, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the detective secretary uh, noticed that uh, I found a lot of crooks, tracked down a lot of crooks without even leaving my desk. So she asked me for some help with missing person cases. Mm. By law, every year, a letter is sent out to the person who reported the the missing persons. Okay. That's that's the follow-up. That's it. And the letters either come back or they don't come back or whatever. So she handed me a stack of uh, probably 10. And I started calling and chatting and I found five missing persons in the first three days. Oh. And uh, the oldest case at that time was like 10 years old. Yeah. And so I started taking on um, the missing person cases. Uh, there were three that I know were murders, but mm. uh, the bodies were found in other jurisdictions. Wow. Uh, they just listed them as a recovered. They refused to open uh murder investigations our department didn't because there was jurisdictional issues and sure. but but three murders and wow. two of them i knew who the killers were but wow. nobody would take action uh people who disappeared on pur- purpose sure uh 
places where there were multiple investigations going on. Um, like this one young man hopped into a, a canoe or uh, whatever you call kayak. it. Kayak. Kayak. Why? And a lady saw him get his kayak up his car and, and, and take off. Uh, she came back two days later. The car was still there. She came back another day and the car was still there. So she called the police and, and that uh, department started a re- an investigation, a hell of an investigation. Yeah. Including the Coast Guard and every police agency, all kinds of stuff. I mean, they were they falls to the walls. Well, his sister makes a re- missing persons report uh, in San Leandro. And 10 years later, I'm going through the files and I find out about what happened in Hawaii. You know, <laughs> so we put it all together, you know, <laughs> things like that. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's... We had one guy, his wife reported him as, as missing and probably murdered. Well, five years later, he and his wife were sitting in the police station making a theft report together. <laughs> Nobody put it together. Wow. That's but there a... are some more. The missing persons thing is uh, there's a national, I'm going to blank now, NAMI, National. Missing Persons and Unidentified Bodies, NAMIS, NAMU. Okay. Uh, it's funded by the government, by the federal government, run by a college uh, lab where they do all kinds of stuff. And mm-hmm. they're tied into every state in the nation and Interpol and a bunch wow. of other countries. Yeah. But uh, not only one person in San Leandro had ever heard of them. So I got to come in, them to come in, and they put on a class for 30 officers from around the state. They find bodies, and he put them together. As a missing persons investigator, I started putting all of the information into the system. Yeah. And they cross-reference it. They help you gather stuff. And we found some people. They don't all, since I left, they don't do that anymore. They don't have the manpower. Okay. Gotcha. Wow. I love that department. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And I bet they loved having you. But let's switch gears here and let's talk about your writing. Now, yeah. did you start with poems and short stories? Is that how you kind of like dipped your toes in the water or how, what did that look like? I had the finest job in the world. I worked for Palm Inc. And I uh, ran uh, their security and investigations uh, department. We got bought out. And they laid off all 1,100. Well, I think they laid it off a, out of 1,150. I think I was number 1,100 laid off. Okay. Anyway, I was 68. I was turning and burning. I was applying for jobs everywhere, not getting a single call. I even applied for jobs where I swear they wrote the description on my uh, uh, resume. And <laughs> anyway. So finally, I gave up, and I saw this class at a community at our local senior center. And I had always swore I will never go inside of a senior center. Well, I took this class. I thought it was uh, would help me writing my resume. Well, it turned out it was creative writing. Okay. And I fell in love with it. I had never really done any writing before except police reports. Sure. Uh, and that was the hardest part of becoming a writer was 
stop writing police reports. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's drilled into our heads, isn't it? I'd turn in assignments and start to say, this looks like a police report. (laughs) So I started uh, Robbers and Cops. uh, And it was mostly going to be about me. And about four months into it, I realized it really sucked. It was boring. So I started writing a real novel. Well, the same instructor one day, she comes in and she's handing out photographs, pictures. And one of them, well, you can, they can't see it, is a picture of two girls uh, look, looking up at the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Assignment. I want you to describe the scene in 15 minutes. Well, I went, I, in 15 minutes, I knew I had a novel I was going to write. Wow. Entitled The Mona Lisa Sisters, and I set robbers aside. Well, I knew by then that I was not a very good writer. So I went to our local community college and started taking English classes. Okay. Classes that when I was trying to avoid the draft, I got nothing but D's in. (laughs) I became a a straight-A student, uh, and I realized I need more than this. And I decided I was going to get an MFA. Okay. I got accepted at uh, San Jose State, which was going to be a lot of travel and work. But about the same time, I was in a poetry class, and an instructor uh, made several presentations by a Native American uh, artist and author, Joy Harjo. And she fascinated me. Well, I saw somewhere that Joy Harjo was going to be making an appointment an appearance at the Institute of American Indian Arts, IAIA, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I Googled it, and hello, heckin', they have an MFA program, a low res, uh, low reservation, low, you go, anyway, it's a lot of work. Uh, so within an hour of reading this, I was uh, an applicant at IAIA, and a month later, I was back there taking classes. Wow. And my entire uh, thesis and project was uh, the Mona Lisa Sisters. Okay. So and you attended the Institute of American Indian Arts? Yes. It, how how close to home was that? That's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Holy cow. So how yeah. long did that take to... Well, that's what they call low res. Uh, I went what does that for... Mean? You go... You go for 10 intense days, nine in the morning till nine at night. Yeah. Uh, then you get assigned uh, your mentor, professor, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the two of you work out a list of eight books you're going to read. Uh, and uh, you can pick six of them. They pick at least two. And you have to read all of those and write reports on them and stuff plus everything else you're doing at the same time and writing and submitting. So I spent an average of each semester uh, 25 to 40 hours a week at home working on my uh, MFA. And so you go back and forth there wow. for these sessions. And then at the last session, they, you know, you, they challenge you, you have to defend your, uh, your thesis your or okay yeah. yeah yeah and so well, i had four different mentors mm. and they were all different and all wonderful 
and I was introduced to some of the best books I could have ever imagined. Okay. So you get your MFA and your MFA project or whatever was the Mona Lisa sisters, that book. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that's why you wrote that book. What is that book about? Could you explain it a little bit to everybody? Yeah. Um, there's a very wealthy young woman who lives up in Connecticut. Her, her family owns uh, railroads and uh, she's really good people. Uh, with she gets married, is pregnant. Within four months, she loses her mother, her father, her husband, and her baby. Yeesh. Yeah. And she goes into deep depression. And her and her husband had planned on a honeymoon in Paris. So finally, her friends convince her she's going to go to Paris. Well, she goes to Paris and she sees these two girls sitting there. Uh, and she comes back the next day. They're still sitting there. So she approaches him and turns out her father was a uh, Boston Mafia gang member. Oh, okay. And he, he fled to he was he fled to Paris to get away from a contract. Well, the contract found him. So anyway, uh, Lura, my my heroine, well, this is going. There's a couple of subplots. Mm-hmm. Uh, she takes him under wing and decides that if the French Authorities get them. They're going to put them in a war um, at an orphanage. Orphanage, and they might get split up. Sure. So she she snatches them and brings them back to America with the surete and criminals all after her. Wow. And okay. Yeah, and it, it turns out real happy. There's oh, good, a, good. There's there's love. <laughs> so you have a new book out on pre-order that's going to go live November 1st called robbers and cops. Yes. Now you started that before all this. And when did you finish it? How long did that take? I finished it uh, about six months ago. Okay. And when did you start it? I started it 12 years ago. Oh man. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what kind of like spurred you to is like, okay, I've got this project. I've got this book, you know, I got to finish it. What, what did that to you? What made well, you push you along? I really never stopped thinking about it. Okay. But uh, I decided, you know, I'm going to make this story work. And it's going to be, uh, by the way, uh, the Mona Lisa sisters is historical fiction from a woman's point of view set in the 1890s. So I have an affinity. I have a BA in history, so I have an affinity for history. Okay. So I decided that I was going to take this incident that occurred over a period of four hours in one day and go back 40 years and start that incident and bring it to fruition mm-hmm. 40 years later. So I have a couple of uh, brothers who are work, they're sharecroppers and for reasons that that you got to read the book for, sure. they wind up on a uh, Georgia chain gang. Oh, okay. And the younger brother is barely seventeen, looks younger, and he uh, becomes the uh, the victim of a, of a predator there. Okay. And it, it, long short, he tells his brother, he says. You know, unless we can stop this, I'm going to kill myself. 
So they find a very ingenious way to kill this predator that everybody there, including the guards, know that they did it, but nobody can prove it. Okay. They get paroled, and they get offered a job as uh, with a gang of thieves up in Oregon. So they have an interesting trip, jumping parole and committing robberies all across the U.S. during uh, the Dust Bowl and Depression. Oh, okay. And they start doing these really unique robberies, very unique. In fact, we had, I live in Dublin, and we had one in Dublin about 60 years ago. Okay. Uh, these guys, if they were real. They could have committed. Anyway, uh, a uh, Oregon State Patrol detective gets on their trail. For the next 40 years, these guys are in and out of prison and jail and committing robberies. And this Oregon State guy is getting promoted up the line, and he's after them. Okay. Gotcha. And, and uh, I'm able to put in some incidents there that uh, my children's father was guilty of. Uh, but he would never be able to say he did that. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> so what's your like ultimate goal with your writing? Why do it? Well, well I know I'm not going to get wealthy, but I'd like to make a few shekels. I'm, okay. uh, I'm two-thirds of the way through right now of a trilogy mm. that's uh, in modern times in a fictitious city in Arizona. And my hero is a Hector McGill Navarro. And uh, he starts out as being on the promotion list, becomes a detective. Uh, I almost said stepped on his dick. Uh, commits, uh, he does things that he probably should not have done okay. on occasion. Uh, bad choices, not not bad, yeah. bad stuff. You know, and every sergeant in the was ever made a sergeant has been guilty of making mistakes. Oh yeah. And learning from them. So, uh, and while this is going on, there's a, uh, uh, very serious gang problem in my town, new Liberty. And the top of the apex are the, uh, four aces, a black gang run by a guy who's called Geronimo. And uh, a lot of violent deaths. Mm. Uh, you don't see the violence, but you know that it, you know, I don't go in for gory stuff or steamy okay. sex. Yeah. But, uh, but lets you know that these things are happening. And a bit of similarity to Robbers, Hector's career follows what's going on in the gang world and with the murders. Uh, and uh, were equal opportunity. So I have uh, biker gang, mm. black gang, and others that are, are coming through this. Cool. Yeah. That sounds great. So I, th I the next question I was going to ask you is what's next for you and your writing, but I think you just answered it. You got this trilogy that you're working on. Yep. Outs yeah. Outstanding. I just wanted to, well, before we stop, I wanted to clarify, you didn't start writing until you were 68? Yeah. Wow, that that's that's fantastic. It, you know, people come up with a lot of excuses. 
for not doing that, you know, or whatever. But here, look at you. That's great. Good for you. All right. So I think we'll end it here. Where can people find more about you and your books? Well, uh, my website will take you to everywhere you need to find me, and that's https colon backslash backslash gdkramer.com. https colon backslash backslash gdkramer.com. All right. Well, George, thank you so much. Everybody go out by Mona Lisa sisters and robbers and cops are, is on pre-order. That's going to go live November 1st. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir, for being on the show. My guest on the show today was police sergeant, private investigator, and author George Kramer. George has had very interesting careers as a cop and PI, and now he's making a name for himself as an author. Thank you for sharing your incredible story with us, George. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you take a minute and rate and review the show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support, and, of course, let's be careful out there. 